Welcome to the Mix Masters Podcast, a program created by me, Steve Litcher, live sound engineer for the band Stitched Up Heart. I created this podcast during the COVID pandemic as a means to keep in contact with my friends and mentors from the live sound industry. Touring with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet some really incredible people, and I wanted to introduce you to their stories. So whether you're an experienced engineer, a hobbyist, or someone who's just wondered what goes into mixing a live music show, this podcast is for you. I've got to thank my friend Merritt Goodwin for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's an incredible musician and composer. Give him a shout on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin, or on Instagram at Doubt the Trust. Thanks again for joining me. Now let's bring up the faders and start the podcast. My guest for this episode is Ken Pooch Van Druten. Look, I'm not going to lie, Pooch is a holy grail guest for me. He's an absolute legend within the live sound industry and is the man and the authority for all things front of house. If you've done anything in the sound business, you definitely know who Pooch is. I probably can't share anything about Pooch that you don't already know. He's worked with an amazing list of artists, including Alanis Morissette, Pantera, LinkedIn, Eminem, Jay-Z, Justin Bieber, Travis Scott, Kiss, Guns N' Roses, Iron Maiden, and countless others. He's endorsed by nearly every prominent audio business on the planet and is infamous for his appreciation and knowledge of Digico mixing consoles. He holds dozens of accolades and awards from the music industry. And with the recent pandemic, he's created and shared hours of educational classes and content that cover every topic imaginable, from parallel compression to vocal chains to busing and grouping and more. Definitely check out his offerings by clicking on the links from today's episode notes. Suffice it to say, Pooch is a master. He's also one heck of a nice guy. You'll hear that echoed in other episodes from my series. Anyone who's ever worked with Pooch says the same thing. He's unbelievably talented and unbelievably nice, and that's a rare combination in this industry. All right, I'll stop gushing, and I'll move you along to today's episode, which features Ken Pooch Van Druten. Enjoy. Uh, Ken, it is an unbelievable honor and pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for taking out of your time, taking time out of your day to be here and talking with me. I really appreciate it. Of course, man. I'm really great, really grateful uh, to be here and talk with you. Well, we're early into this, so I have time to uh, change your opinion of that. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no. So, how are you uh, holding up with the pandemic? Uh, I know you've been busy uh, putting a lot of really great educational material out there for people. Um, how are you doing otherwise with, uh, the quarantine and isolation? Um, <laughs> I'm a, uh, when I'm at home, I'm kind of that loner guy anyway. I prefer to be at home and doing projects at home and, and that kind of thing, but it is, it's getting a little, it's getting a little much, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, you know, I mean, uh, everybody I know is, is healthy. Um, thank goodness. And, um, so I, I think what we're doing is, is helping, um, you know, the uh, financial insecurity of everything is really a kind of way more crippling than the thought of getting COVID. Um, you know, our business is uh, looking like we're not going to be working for a while. You know, um, once everybody else opens up and does stuff, um, you know, I think the the sports is going to be the model of how it's going to move forward. But the thing is, is the sports guys are talking about doing sporting events with no one there. 
well, we can't do that. We have to have people there, you know? Um, or, you know, I mean, I guess it could go into streaming and that kind of stuff, but that's, you know, it's not going to be a whole lot of jobs for people. So anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm doing well and I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm just trying to like everyone else figure out, um, you know, what, how this is going to turn out, you know, it's yeah. trippy. Yeah. I wish I had a crystal ball so that I could say, Hey, we'll be back on the road, you know, on November 15th, but to your point, we just, we have no idea. So yeah, I'm glad I you're know. hanging in. And, and I am one of those guys, unfortunately, that is, you know, a, a glass half empty kind of a guy. So, uh, <laughs> I look at it and I say, well, you know what? I have to plan for the worst. You know, I have to figure out, um, maybe to try to figure out, um, what's going to get me through to 2021. Cause that's really kind of what it's looking like. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I know I'm, I am just like other guys out there, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to make a living in the next, in the next six months or seven months of this. Um, so, um, I don't know, maybe I'll be the, uh, the manager of a Best Buy, uh, pro audio department. <laughs> well, let's hope not. That would be a tremendous waste of uh, talent. <laughs> I think Although, it'd be awesome though. I would love it. <laughs> we'd probably get some good answers though for once rather than the usual, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So uh, before we go into the interview too far, I do want to mention that Pooch has a number of items going on right now, and everybody should take advantage of these. Um, you've got your Masterclass series, which you have published. Um, it's a multi-hour course that was recorded while you were down in Brazil. I went through that thing uh, in about a day and a half, and I've revisited it. It is absolutely fantastic. So um, do you want to let people know where they can find that real quick? Sure. Um, you can go to all of my um, social media, of course, and there's always links to that. Um, it's kind of a long link, so it's it'd be hard for me to just read it over the thing. But we'll put it in go to my social media, and my social media is um, at foh underscore engineer underscore pooch on Instagram, uh, and it's foh engineer pooch on um, uh, Facebook as well. So there's links all over the place. Just awesome. search it; you can find it. It's easy. Yeah, it's. I highly recommend it. Um, you're also doing your YouTube channel uh, with your discussions with Chris, and those are absolutely fascinating as well. So we'll put links up for all of that uh, in the show notes. Um, cool. Yeah, so let's talk real briefly about your history. I think uh, most people are fairly aware that you grew up in a, with a musical background and got interested in music really early, went to Berkeley. Um, you were in a punk band that ended up uh, getting a recording deal at a studio, and that sort of introduced you to studio life. You want to pick up from there and uh, just take us up from there through your uh, first tour experience? Sure. Um, so I ended up going to Berklee College of Music in Boston, um, and I uh, ended up basically with the first semester that I went there, I went to a local studio and just said, I'll do anything. I'll empty the garbage. I'll, you know, whatever it takes. Um, and the owner, um, was very nice to me and, and let me do that. It's, it's really weird. Like that dude found me on Facebook, um, like recently. And I was just like, Hey man, thank you so much for picking me to be the guy, you know, that emptied your garbage. Cause this is where it's led me. You know what I mean? So anyway, it's come really full circle for me. That was, that was intense. That conversation with a guy that actually made a difference in my, you know, um, where I am today. Um, but anyway, um, you know, so I ended up working at this studio called Newberry sound. Um, and I was working there almost full time and going to school. 
I did that for four years. Uh, by the time I graduated, I was like the head engineer there um, and was doing, um, you know, I, I did some records there that were known artists at the time. One of the artists was this uh, two kids called Criss Cross. And they were uh, these two kids that wore their clothes backwards. So their shirts were turned around. It was it was uh, it was a trip. It was a weird time going on in music. Um, and uh, so I did that. And then I moved to Los Angeles to be a, a producer and engineer. That was my intention. I had never uh, I had never mixed anything live. I didn't really that wasn't going to be my thing, you know, Um uh, so I ended up doing that for four or five years as a producer and engineer and, and ended up on some records um, and got some Grammy nominations from that. And um, so my career as a recording engineer guy was going pretty well, um, but I was kind of like a little bit disheartened with the state of music at the time. It was 1992 and um, rap music was super huge. Um, and so I spent a great deal of my time not recording real instruments and I was kind of, you know, in this weird moment of like, you know, is this really what I want to do as a recording engineer? So I was looking to get out of that, I think. Um, but, uh, as it turns out, I was asked by a band, this band called Warrant, uh, to, um, mix their live sound. And, um, I just fell in love with it, man. I, you know, um, there, there's still to this day, there is nothing like, 50,000 people screaming for something that you're doing, you know, whenever you push a guitar solo and 50,000 people scream, it's about you too. It's not just about the guitar player playing that awesome solo. It's about you creating that space for that guy. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I just fell in love with that. And the fact that I got to tour and see the world was a, was an added bonus for sure. Um, so I just lucked into all kinds of things after that, really. I mean, honestly, people always ask me, like, how do I get to where you are? Um, and I, I hate to say it, but the old adage is true. You know, right place at right time um, is, is a true thing. Um, now, what I always tell people is that's true, but you have to put yourself to be in the position to be in the right place at the right time. So, for instance... I was standing next to a guy that got fired, right? And I happened to be the guy that was standing there. So boom, I got the gig because they were like, okay, you're out, you're in, you know? Um, and it's those kind of things that you need to put yourself in that position. But after that, man, I will tell you that most of the things that happened to me in my career after that were like nothing that I had to do with, you know what I mean? It was like, it just happened, you know? Um, and it's weird. I don't, I don't mean to get all spiritual about it, but I really do think that there was something like, you know, guiding me to be in these different different places. So it, it's a hard question for me to answer. No, I get it. Thankfully, you've yeah. uh, pleased the sound gods and they have uh, bestowed great things <laughs> yes. upon you as a result. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So before yeah. we uh, talk tech and stuff, was there ever a plan B for you or did you know you wanted to be involved in, you know, either recording or live sound or you know, was it was Best Buy manager uh, something that you were considering at some point? Uh, yes, funny. Um, yeah, it's weird. My life has had all these kind of weird turns in it. Um, you know, I uh, 
I come from a family that is all uh, MDs, all doctors. Uh, my father was a doctor, his two brothers, my grandfather, his father um, were all MDs, and then a, a bunch of um, cousins who are MDs. So I kind of was the black sheep in the family, the music guy, you know, hey, that's a music guy, you know, and, and when we get together at family gatherings, it was all, you know, doctors. Um, so there was some some pressure on me to be a, you know, work in the medical field. Um, and I actually gave it a chance and started working as a, uh, EMT paramedic, um, and tried that for about a year and just said, this isn't for me. Um, but, uh, it was kind of always there. Like that was, that was something that I could have, like, if I totally just ate it, you know, <laughs> um, as a sound guy, you know, like if I had graduated from Berkeley and moved to Los Angeles and nothing had happened, um, that kind of was my second path, I think. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. It's hard to world or it's hard to imagine a live sound world without you behind the helm of a, a desk. So I'm glad everything is working out sound wise. <laughs> Me too, man. I, I am super blessed uh, to do what I do for sure. Yeah. Likewise. Um, okay, so you you hop on the live environment with Warrant, and then from there your career just sort of you know takes off, and you work with some huge names: Lincoln Park, Jay Z, Pantera, Eminem, uh, Justin Bieber, um, Guns N' Roses, and probably most recently, I think a lot of people know you from uh, Iron Maiden. Um, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about some of the behind the scenes things that go into preparing for a tour with Iron Maiden? Um, you know, how do they communicate the requirements to you and what's your involvement with them in terms of specking out gear or other items? Do they own their PA? Are you guys, you know, how do you go about sort of building the tour and getting started? What, what goes into like a massive undertaking like that? Um, I think luckily Iron Maiden is one of those bands that likes to rehearse. Um, and so, uh, I had the first time that I ever met them, um, actually in person, uh, was in, uh, Paris, uh, and we did rehearsals in Paris for a month, uh, before the beginning of the legacy of the beast tour. Um, and so I think there's, you know, for having a month opportunity to kind of work with them and like figure out what their needs were and, and, um, you know, figure out what I was going to get was, um, is imperative, you know? Um, but prior to that, there is a lot of, you know, you have to decide what kind of equipment you're going to be specking and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so some of that was discussed, but I pretty much for the most part, I have, um, been lucky enough to work with bands that kind of just let me spec whatever they hire me because of my, my reputation and my experience. And they kind of say, Hey, you know, do whatever you think's right. You know, um, in Iron Maiden's case, uh, they have a, um, a tour coordinator slash production manager guy, um, that's, that's been around them for years and years and years. Um, so we had a bunch of communication, um, you know, prior to, to that, his name is Ian day and he's amazing. Um, and so he and I, uh, before we even got to Paris were, you know, like I was communicating with backline guys and having discussions over emails about, you know, what it is. Um, 
you know, I discovered it's funny, you know, I'm an Iron Maiden fan, right? Like when I was 15, I was like, man, Iron Maiden is the best. That was like their first record when I was 15. Um, and, you know, I had posters on the wall of Eddie and, you know, I mean, I was that guy. I was like, you know, cool. So it's kind of come full circle and I'm like, okay. Um, but what I didn't know and what a lot of super intense Iron Maiden fans know is that, um, you know, like for instance, Nico's had the same kind of drum kit, not manufactured, but the, the, where the placement of the sizes of the toms and the kick and all that stuff has been the same for years and years and years. They're like kind of, they're very set in their ways. You know, they've been around for 43 years. Um, and I didn't know that prior to working for them. And I didn't know that as a fan. Um, so just discovering all of that as I was getting into this was um, super helpful that the backline guys were telling me those kind of things, you know. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying to stress to people how important communication is. Once you get the gig, it's like I immediately start asking people for email addresses of, you know, backline guys and et cetera. Who should I talk to? Um, you know. So that I can get information without having to be the guy that has to go to a band members. You know what I mean? Um, so uh, anyway, we ended up, uh, you know, in rehearsals for four weeks and the preparation of that was pretty intense, you know, and and um, I uh, I record every single thing um, and use virtual playback all the time. Um, so kind of my M.O. is always. Um, you know, collect the data during the day. The thing is just running all the time. Um, and then as soon as everybody goes away, I'm usually at a rehearsal space for another eight hours after everyone else leaves. Wow. Um, just kind of, you know, being really, you got to realize, you know, I come from being a recording engineer, so that makes sense to me, right? Like going over and over a Tom fill, looping a Tom fill and then, you know, just getting in there and really, you know, messing with it. Um, is something that is, uh, feels very, um, very good to me. Not, you know, it's not foreign to me. I want to do that. Um, so this whole virtual playback thing that happened recently only in the last 10 years, let's say, um, is really like, I was thinking the other day, like, I don't think I could do my job as without, without having virtual playback anymore. In fact, I look back at my 30 year career and say, well, how the hell did I do this before? Like for that, whatever, the first 10 years, you know what I mean? Of my career where there was no virtual playback, like how, and honestly, I think I just did it, but I can't really remember, <laughs> uh, how that happened. Um, it's life changing. Anyway, so yeah, I mean that, that's kind of how we set up stuff, you know, it, um, is there something specific you want beyond that? I don't know. No, I was just curious about the scale of that rehearsal. Um, you know, and, and, are you setting up uh, the full stage? Are you in a uh, a rented uh, arena, or you know what's the size and the scope of that rehearsal that you're doing with them for that month? And then, is that production manager is Ian, you know, standing next to you for part of the rehearsal, giving you notes, uh, or you know, how does that interaction play out? Um, no, you know, Ian used to be a sound guy, so I do trust him, and I and I uh, I did ask him about some things, but he was very gracious in not being, you know, right up my ass the entire time, you know, he, um, which is good. You know, if you give me space, then I'll, you know, 
I'll, I'll get what you need, but you got to give me a little bit of space to work here. Um, and he did that. And so, um, th- yeah, so the first three weeks of that, I think, or maybe even a little more, um, were in a rehearsal studio, um, kind of your average kind of SIR ish, um, larger room, but not, you know, um, uh, you know, not a, uh, a giant stage. And then, um, there was like seven days of production rehearsals that were in the first venue that we played at. Um, so, and in those seven days were probably two kind of band run throughs, um, prior to the, to the show. Um, along with, you know, just getting everything, it's the beginning of a tour. So just seeing where that all the lighting and the video and everything fits. Um, so it was, you know, long, long days for seven days straight, um, before we started. Yeah. So. It's got to pay big dividends though. And I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, absolutely required at that level. You don't want to get to, uh, American airlines arena or United center and try to figure things out there. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, coming out of rehearsals, I had a pretty good idea of what was going on. I had a pretty good mix happening. But, you know, just like any other band, I think that guys play differently in a regular kind of SIR rehearsal-ish place than they do when they get out in front of, certainly in front of fans, but even in a bigger room, you know, where all of a sudden they have side fills now and, you know, all those kind of things. I think they play differently. So, I find that, you know, those three weeks are, it's a very helpful to have those three weeks, of course. Um, but the, there is definitely a couple of days in the first part where we're in a big arena where I'm making pretty major adjustments to my mix still. Um, it's not like I do rehearsals. I've got a great near field thing going on. And then I show up in the big place. We put it into big speakers and it's great. That's not what happens. What happens is, is like, Oh, crap, they're playing this differently or, you know, the drummer's hitting harder or, you know, all of those kind of things. And so it, it, it's helpful to have those rehearsals, but man, if you don't have those couple of days in the big place, then it's, it's hard, man. You know, I, I realize that I'm super blessed in that the opportunities that I get, I work with bands that have, um, you know, the, the resources to be able to rehearse that long. You know what I mean? These guys, um, that go out and only get, you know, half a day before a big arena show, man, those are the guys that are kicking butt, man. (laughs) I get way, I get way more time, you know, um, to, uh, to get my shit together. That's for sure. Yeah, it's definitely helpful. Um, I don't want to talk about myself too much, but I was on tour with Stitched Up Heart and Steel Panther earlier last year. And, we literally uh, stitched up heart was headlining um, the first part of the tour. Then we met up with steel Panther in Boston and we were playing this tiny little club in um, the drummer from stitched up heart. His hometown is Scranton, Pennsylvania. So on Saturday night, we were in this tiny little club mixing on like a speaker on a stick scenario, you know, a hundred people, just a really awesome show. And then the next day we're at house of blues, Boston, you know, on a 70 by 50 stage with a huge D and B liner. I got whiplash from making that change. (laughs) That's totally true. I mean, you know, um, I've done those tours, right. That were like all kinds of different venues, you know, um, you know, and, and those are hard, man, to try to make all that work where you go from just a tiny ass club to a theater, to a house of blues, to a, you know, that's really where you, you can show your stuff, man. Or you can fall on your face, which is what I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Um, you know. 
Um, so when you're at the venue and you're setting up and your system engineer is tuning the PA and you're running through virtual playback, it's you know the day of the show or the day before, what type of uh, feedback and input are you getting? Are you walking around the venue? Are you just focusing on the front of house position? How do you approach going into the venue and you know making sure that you're comfortable with everything that's going on um, you know for the audience at, at the time of show? So for the beginning of the tour, probably the first, I would say first two weeks of a tour, um, I do a lot of walking, like I'll walk around and just make sure that the front fills are, you know, sounding like they're supposed to, and then make sure the side hang is working with the front hang and, you know, walking up into the seats and, and that kind of stuff. But for the majority of the tour after that, I'm really super focused at being at front of house and making it sound good at front of house and really trusting my system engineer to be the guy that um, that takes that and, you know, uh, makes it sound the same. I mean, that's really what a system engineer's job is, is making it sound the same. Like, don't make it sound better or worse or whatever you think that you should be EQing or not EQing. I, if I think it sounds good here, it should sound the same everywhere. You know what I mean? And so the best system engineers are those guys, the guys that can take it and say, okay, I know what it sounds like here. I want it to sound like that way up in the nosebleed. Um, so, um, man, I am one of those guys. It is the best situation when you have a system engineer that has two skills is really good at networking and knows what sounds good. If you can find that in one guy, it's, you know, hang on to that dude. And the thing is, is that guy has skill sets that I don't particularly want to have. Like, I don't want to know a whole lot about networking, <laughs> to be honest. It's not, it's not something that I'm like, you know, really into. And unfortunately, that's, that is what a system engineer's job is these days is, is being a network guy. And, um, so uh, it works. It's the best scenario when I find a guy that has that skill set and he works with me um, and my skill set of saying basically here's left and right and I think it's pretty good. You take it from here and uh, make sure it sounds the same everywhere. Um, so I, I rely very heavily on a really good system engineer. Do you find yourself touring with the same system engineer or are you sort of at the mercy of the, uh, the act or the support crew that you're working with for a particular tour? I, um, have been lucky in, I've been able to choose a system engineer in a bunch of different scenarios, but for the most part, it, it usually is, um, you know, some sort of political thing in the sense of, you know, the, the, the band has chosen to go with a particular sound company and the guy that I usually tour with is not from that sound company, you know, so there's those kind of things, um, unfortunately I don't have the means to be, to employ a guy and say, Hey, he's coming with me, you know, which guys have actually asked me, you know, Hey, can I be, you know, can we sell ourselves as two guys, you know, to a band? Um, and I would love to do that, but I just, I, I don't have the clout, I guess, for managers or, or, uh, you know, sound companies to, to do that. But, um, I will tell you 
that I have been super lucky uh, to work with most of the people that have been given to me that I didn't know. For example, with Iron Maiden, um, they have a system engineer. His name is Mike Hackman and um, definitely one of the best system engineers in the world. Um, but I didn't know him before I worked for Iron Maiden. He was an Iron Maiden employee uh, prior to me and he worked with other sound guys prior to me in regards to Iron Maiden. Um, and they, they were not like Iron Maiden asked me if that was going to be okay. And I said, yeah, of course. Um, but I said, of course, after I had called around and said, you know, who, how is this guy, you know, what's, I've checked up on him and everybody said he was amazing. And then when I got there, I was like, oh man, this guy, you know, this guy's unbelievable. So I've been lucky in that I've been get, I've, I've been paired with really, really good guys. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Um, what are you looking for in a tuning? I'm, I'm guessing you want it completely flat. Are you looking for a sub boost, a high shelf? What, what are you generally asking your system engineer to do with the tuning? That's, that's a really great question because um, I am a guy that wants his PA as linear as possible from about 100 all the way up. I want to bump down in the sub kind of information, you know, um, as everyone does, um, just to have a little more impact going on. Um, I don't want it overemphasized and I don't want it to be like everything centered at 60, you know, um, kick drum. I want a, a nice sloping, you know, hump right there around a hundred. Um, but from like 150, like all the way up, I'm talking out to 16. I want it linear, man. I want the sparkly bits. I want all that crap. And there are, Unfortunately, um, some major PAs out there that um, their preset is not that. Their preset is very slanted and, um, you know, you get above 10K or 8K and um, all their high end starts to drop off. And, and the reason that they do that, in my opinion, is that that is a really hard place to manage in your mix. If you don't have your, you know, 6K to... 12k right in your mix those are all frequencies that can really hurt people bad you know what i mean so if i believe and i you know i don't know this for a fact but i feel like the reason that pas manufacturers make that preset where it's slanted and down in that section is to kind of help out mixers right so um, if your mix has some stuff in there that's, you know, a little bit harsh or whatever, if you fired up on a DNBJ series, for example, um, that your mix would actually be okay because those frequencies are not really there. They're being, you know, kind of, they're down in there, you know, when we're talking about measurement wise and listening. Um, but, but for me, um, I prefer a PA that's linear all the way out and let me do it in my mix. Um, and I think that comes from being a recording engineer and listening to near fields. I want all those sparkly bits and let me control the sparkly bit parts. Um, so there are PAs that do that well, um, linear all the way out. And there are PAs that don't do that well. Um, but, um, you know, I, I do my best to EQ some of those things to kind of try to make them do that well, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. Um, so if I show up and the preset is obvious, you know, um, I'm using J series for example, and I'm not bagging on J series. I really think it's a great PA, but I just know in that particular box, the high end part of that has a big 
drop in it. So when I show up on J series, I usually take a shelf and try to get some of that back. So I'm actually fighting the preset a little bit um, to 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 try to get some of that um, because that stuff in my mix is really pretty and I don't want it to be, you know, to go away. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating because I talk to a lot of guys and, and I think the general consensus is, you know, these days the speaker systems are so good and quote unquote, a box is a box, but that's really not the case. So to your point, a lot of them are voiced differently and For have sure. different responses. So yeah, if you're not getting what you want, that makes complete sense. It's a great conversation, right? Because Really, if you're talking about the top five PAs, a box kind of is a box, but those PAs are different in the sense of, you know, I always use the analogy of ice cream, right? Like you might like vanilla ice cream and I might like chocolate ice cream. There's still, a, it's still ice cream. Like we can both agree that it's ice cream, but they taste very differently and your taste might be different than mine. That's kind of what's happening in the top five PAs for me. Um, I tend to like PAs more that have a thing about them. They're kind of boutique-y. Um, Adamson, for instance, uh, for an off-the-shelf box is probably my second favorite PA because it has a boutique-y thing about it. It's waveguide, it's mid-range, and its highs are really awesome. Like a vocal and a snare drum through an Adamson box really just pops, you know, guitars really pop. Um, so, uh, that it has a thing about it, right. You know, and then if you talked about J series, you know, J series is meaty and you know, it's got, um, it's got a really, uh, nice kind of like 200 to 400 range. You know what I mean? It's, it's got meat and, uh, if you're doing rock stuff, you know, it, it, kind of gets there and, and, uh, um, does a good job. Um, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, my favorite PA right now is actually the Claire cohesion, um, which is a proprietary box, right? So maybe some guys are not getting a chance to use it, but, um, it's, it's really my favorite box right now at the moment. Yeah, it is an impressive system. I, I was out in Lidditz, um, about a year and a half ago looking at stuff with them and got to, uh, play around on the co 12 system, yeah. Man alive, they're doing some good things with that system for sure. So did you did you like it? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because I, you know, I uh, was invited to hear it in its very early stages. Um, and so I went to Claire and, and checked it out. And um, and, you know, and I'm not saying anything out of school when I say that I didn't really like I5 or I4. I wasn't a fan of either one of those boxes. I I could get a result that was good, but it wasn't it wasn't my thing. Um, and so I was excited that they were going to, you know, have this new box and whatever. And, um, even on the very first version of it, I went, okay, now you guys got something, you know? Yeah. Um, and now, you know, bunches of years later, um, it's, it's really come into its own. It's, it's definitely my favorite box out there right now. Yeah. The co the co 12s and, uh, tens are, are phenomenal, but they're the, the subs are also just absolute oh, monsters <laughs> killing and they're killing and you don't need a bunch. I know, you know, I mean like, um, uh, with Iron Maiden, we fly three subs aside in cardioid and then, uh, on the ground are six subs aside. So it's a total of 16 subs, I think, or something like that, you know, for a huge 270 arena rock show, you know yeah. what I mean? And I'm still like turning the sub information down, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's impressive, man. And you know, it's funny before, 
if you really dig into like some YouTubers and videos, you will find me talking about how I hate 12 inch PAs and how uh, 15 inch PA is the only PA to have, you know? Um, and I really was that guy for a long time. I was like, man, 12 inch just doesn't get it. You know, there's that 80 to 200 range that a 12 inch just can't really do it. And and, um, you know, the Claire one made me eat my words. Um, you know, I showed up and went, oh, okay, so now 12 inch PAs can do that, you know? Um, so I just think it's funny that there's, there's all kinds of social media shit up there of me going, you know, no more 12 inch PAs. And then now I'm the guy that's like, you know, cohesion's the best. <laughs> so anyway, I, I find it funny. Yeah, it's it's a game changer. I could go on and on about that stuff. Um, the crew there is just phenomenal uh, in general, but the stuff that they're building is insane, uh, ridiculous stuff. Yeah, so, they're, I mean, they've always been an amazing service company. That's never changed. Like, they've been an amazing service company. It's just that now they have a really great box. Yeah. Yeah, it's also interesting. Gosh, I don't want to talk about Claire uh, Global all day, but it's interesting because um, they were hiring for a network touring engineer uh, network okay. engineer, you know, just for touring purposes. So it just reinforces your point about how important it is to be net, you know, network savvy. And, um, yeah. you know, so everybody who's listening, if you have learned everything there is to learn about sound, uh, start focusing on networking layer two, layer three, blah, blah, blah. Oh man. I'm telling you if while you're sitting here at home, you should be going to the sure website and learning everything you want to know about wireless and then you should be going to non-audio networking sites and learning about networking in general. Um, and if you have those kind of tools in your tool belt, you'll when this thing's over, you'll be like, you know, you will be, you'll have a job for life. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so I want to touch uh, real quickly on the last bit of the the setup questions. Um, what are you listening to for a reference track? So after you get the your system tech gets the PA tuned and you throw something up, are you listening to your multi-tracks? Do you have a reference track that you really like to fall back on? And and if you do, what is it about that reference track that you really like and what are you listening to on it? It's funny. I used to be the guy um, prior to virtual playback that was, you know, had six songs that were all chosen because they had different things to them. You know, one song had high mid range. And so it really showed what was happening in the mid range of the PA. One song had sub information, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you know, those things were generally great sounding records that were prior to the L1, L2 loudness wars that destroyed records. Right. Um, prior to that, there were some really great dynamic records that had all kinds of, you know, great sounding records. And so I was using that Nowadays, I will tell you that my system engineer will generally have four or five tracks that he plays that do that, um, check the different kinds of the PA. Um, and I, um, even while a system engineer is working, I will sit out there um, just to kind of hear what's happening in the room. You know, Chris Rabel brought up a great point in one of the, our videos talking about how when you walk into an arena the first thing in the morning at 7 a.m., like start listening to the guy that drops, drops the shackles. Start listening to people talking to each other across the room because those are all telling signs about what's going to happen to your room, you know, when you, you put energy into it. Um, I thought that was great. Chris is awesome. Um, 
But in regards to that, I would sit there while my system engineer is doing his thing. And over time, I kind of learn what his tracks do to the room. Um, and then after that, he usually hands me the keys and I go right to playing a virtual playback of the show from the night before. Um, if, if it was a horrible show, then, then I'll pick a couple of shows before that or whatever. But generally it's always like the show from the night before. And the reason for that is it's probably the most realistic of where mic placements have shown up and, um, maybe the keyboard players turning it up a little bit more than he did at the beginning of the tour, you know, all those kind of things. It's more realistic to what's happening, you know, from yesterday. Sure. Um, so then I'll listen to a song, um, and usually, um, loop that song and the, um, the system engineer will walk the room while I'm doing that. Um, and he learns what I am looking for from that. Um, so it's a real team effort. Um, but generally the general statement from my perspective is that I only use virtual playback. Yeah, that's interesting, and it's it's a great idea. I may have to start trying to do that. Um, so thanks for sharing that tip. How are you? Uh, how are you protecting your hearing? You've uh, you've done a lot of uh, you know shows over the years, and the, a lot of the stuff that you're doing in the mix is really nuanced and you know really um, sort of specialized. Is there any tricks that you're using to protect your hearing? Are you mixing with in ears, or what are you doing from that side of things? I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? I can't hear. <laughs> Let me turn up my level. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I kid. Uh, you know, it's funny. I've thought about this a lot because it's true. I've had 30 years, 28 years of high volume exposure. Um, and even more so, I think about it a lot like with monitors. Like when I was a monitor engineer there for a minute, um, my, I was a monitor engineer in the days of loud wedges, not in-ears. And so I had a Q wedge and it was always on my right hand side. And that Q wedge man was on stun like during shows. I mean, loud, loud, as loud as it would go. Um, and, and so I know um, that there's a little dip in my hearing in my right ear. Um, and it's noticeable. And I know I, sometimes it makes me do a little bit of image shifting stuff, you know, like I go, is that really right? You know, um, it's luckily it's not like a huge thing. It's like literally uh, I go to a, a hearing specialist and get my hearing measured and it's, you know, like a, whatever they say, 0.5 dip, you know, at one K in my right ear. Um, but I do notice it every once in a while. It's interesting. And it's mostly in stereo imaging. Like I, I sometimes have to go, you know, what's happening. Um, so, um, the, the other part about this is that I truly believe, um, that since I'm the guy in control of what it sounds like, if it's hurting me, then I do something about it. Right. So if I'm sitting there and it's just like, oh man, this is like fucking ridiculous. It's hurting. And you know, I can't, then I fix it. Right. And so I think that is a lot of, um, why there's not intense hearing damage is because I have control over what I'm listening to. That makes sense. Now, outside of that, um, any travel, any opening act, any, anywhere there is loud, um, stuff going on, 
um, I have earplugs in, um, you know, on a plane, on a bus, on a, you know, um, an opening act, anytime that there are, is loud stuff happening, I carry a pair of earplugs with me wherever I go. Even when I'm at home and I go to, um, out to a restaurant, that's really noisy. I'll pop my plugs in. Um, just because, you know, I mean, my ears are everything. They're my life. They're how I make a living. And, um, I'm trying to conserve them for as long as I can. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think there's some, some part of that too is, is being lucky. Um, you know, people, I know guys that have, um, there were sound guys and now can't be because they've lost their hearing over the years, you know? Yeah. It's definitely something that scares me. I was foolish in my younger days, uh, working in small clubs, you know, and listening to stuff oh. way too loud. And so I've got that same dip you've got, but it's at around 800. Yeah, And so I find that, you know, I'll be listening to my mix and I'm like, boy, I got to bring up something here. And then I'll listen back the next day. And I'm like, Ooh, remember the dip, you know, like, don't, yeah. don't do no, that. That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, just gonna train I mean, yourself. it's, it's, it's really interesting. You know, when I first started and I'm sure when you started too, there wasn't all of this documentation of what happens to long exposure of, um, volumes and, and man. So, you know, we were stupid. We were like, yeah, you know, I'd be in clubs mixing hair bands, you know, and just, I mean, I don't even know, like measured was probably, I don't know, like 106, 107, 108, a weighted all the time, you know what I yeah. mean? That stuff. And nowadays, um, because there's so much more documentation about it, you know, I'm really, um, I really like spend a bunch of time making sure that I'm not the cause of someone else's hearing, uh, hearing loss. So, um, you know, measured wise, um, I'm like a guy that mixes 102 DBA weighted, you know, LEQ over 10 at front house, um, which is, that's a meaty rock show, but that's not what, you know, it's not you damaging. go see some other shows and they're 105 for most of the time, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I told the story on an earlier episode, but we, um, did system support for Jackal and, uh, we were like 300 feet back <laughs> and we were measuring, you know, 113, 114 a oh, And I was just good. like, Oh my uh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, that's it. just not fair to the people, you know, the, the problem is, okay. So when back in the day, um, PAs started to distort when they got loud. Right. And so it would make you turn down because it's like, oh, it's distorting. OK, I'm going to turn down a little bit. So the technology was actually making us mix softer. But now we're talking about uh, PAs that have headroom to, you know, the bejesus like you could kill somebody with audio because of the headroom. And the reason is, is to get rid of, um, you know, all of the distortion that happens when you start getting, you know, dynamic things way up, way up there. Um, but the problem is, is that people are still using the tool and taking up all of the headroom as a, as a usage thing. And, and your ears don't tell you that something is loud until they start to hear distortion. And so people, I've watched guys all the time, they turn it up and up and up and up and up and up and up because they don't have a sense of what is loud. Um, and so I really tell young engineers all the time, like it's important that you pay attention to measured loudness and look at it and say, okay, so that's what 102 sounds like. And I'm going to train myself to what 102 sounds like so that when I'm in a situation where I don't have something to look at for measured sound, I can understand what's loud. 
Um, because it, for me, it was, we'd turn it up. Oh, it's the starting. Let's turn it back down, you know? Um, but that's not the case anymore. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we've got about 15 minutes left at the most here. So I want to make the most of the time that's left. So talking a little bit about your mix philosophies, um, what are you listening to in the mix? I know you place a lot of emphasis on getting vocals on top, but when you're sitting at the console and you're, you're firing up a show and you're listening over time, what are you really focusing on? Like, where are your... Where is all of your attention directed to, and what are you really trying to uh, make sure you, you know, get out there and, um, you know, make ro- making room in the mix for all of the different frequencies? How are you going about doing that? So um, in rehearsal periods and kind of leading up to a tour, I'm super focused on individual things. Um, and I tell guys this all the time, try to train yourself to listen through the mix at specific things, right? So if you're sitting at home and you're listening to one of your favorite records, like focus on all I want to hear about is the hi-hat, right? Like I want to tune out everything else that's going on, um, in this record, even in a stereo record, a, a commercially released record and train, try to train your brain to focus on little minute things like that. Because honestly, that is what's happening inside of my head in that kind of rehearsal period lead up to a tour. Like I'm literally, if you could be inside my head, which would be very bad, you don't want to do that. But if you, you were inside my head, you would see me focus on little thing, fix it, focus on another thing, fix it, focus on another thing, fix it, and not for the most part, listening to the overall picture, like really focusing on little things in the mix, right? Not soloed. I'm not talking about soloed. I'm talking about hearing everything and then being able to focus on one individual thing that's cutting through that mix. That's a skill that takes training and you have to work on that. Um, I then will kind of pop myself out of that and look at the global picture, right? Like, listen, okay, I'm looking at the global picture. I can figure out detail. Um, in general, my mixed philosophy is no one thing, no two things can share the same stereo space or the same EQ space, right? So that is what I'm constantly thinking about. So for instance, if there is a guitar, I place the guitar at 10 o'clock. Well, now nothing else gets 10 o'clock. Things can have 1030 and 930, but nothing gets 10 o'clock in the panning spectrum, stereo spectrum of things, okay? Along with that is EQ. Now, obviously, there's lots of layover from, you know, different instruments all have kind of share the same frequencies, and that's part of getting a good mix to work together is all the frequencies to work together. But kind of the overall philosophy of that is, hey, if my snare drum has a lot of 200 in it, in the bottom of it, that's really the thing that's going to get the 200, right? Like I know there's guitars that are in there and there's, you know, the, the middle of a kick drums in there and, you know, all those kind of things are surrounding that 200. But the emphasis EQ wise is on the snare drum because I've said the snare drum gets 200 and that's I'm thinking about that from, you know, 30 Hertz to 16, um, who gets what? And I, I spent a bunch of time with low pass filtering, um, making sure that in my sparkly bits, 
there's not confusion up there, you know? Like if there is only noise happening in a particular input that is 8K and above, then get rid of that noise, man. Low pass filter all the way down to 8K. I think people don't use low pass filters enough. Um, if you look at my vocal EQ, you will notice it looks like a big U because it's got high pass filtering and low pass filtering. It looks like that when you look at it on my console. Um, so um, I, I, I try to really think about those kind of things. Like I say, you know, hey, the symbols of a drum kit are the only thing that's going to get, you know, 11K, 12K, you know, that's their space. Um, and then there's a third thing, which is depth. Um, so there's a way of creating depth with, um, by using reverbs and effects. Um, so you're creating 3d space. Um, so really when I'm looking at the overall picture of creating a mix, it's a 3d kind of experience, right? It's like not only left to right, but it's also, Hey, at 10 o'clock is that guitar, but kind of behind the guitar at 10 o'clock, I'm going to put something there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yes, they don't get to share that same space at, at, at um, you know, 10 o'clock in the panning space, but kind of they do in depth wise too, you know? So uh, there's a lot going on during rehearsals in that. Okay. So that is kind of a, a tour through how I'm thinking about in rehearsals. Um, when we get to shows, it's way more simple. It's, um, I'm super focused on, um, vocal intelligibility. That's really kind of like what I am doing the entire time. I'm one of those mixers that never takes his hand off the vocal fader. Um, it's my finger is always on that vocal fader and I ride it a lot. Um, even though I have compressed a vocal in this day and age where vocal compression is so, you know, some vocals are just squashed to hell. Um, even then I'm still doing a bunch of writing to keep that vocal intelligible over the top of all of the things. Um, and so I would say in, during the show, that is really my focus. Like I'm literally like, okay, the band's here and it's good. And all I'm thinking about is how to get that vocal over the top and, and in between songs, understanding the guy as he's talking or a girl, um, is just as important. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's. That's it. That's uh, my show thing. You're mixing on like X, Y, and Z axis, which is pretty crazy to think about when you talk about the depth and the the panning yeah. and yeah, getting all that there. It's fascinating. It's it's one of the hardest things. Like when I do these master classes and I try to teach people, it's a hard thing to teach, right? Like my experience is um, that I can give you some tools to make that happen, but um, you really have to spend a bunch of time on your own ear training. You know, when I first started as a recording engineer and went to Berklee College of Music, I bought a graphic EQ and sat in front of near fields and spent hours ear training. Like, you know, okay, this frequency does this, this does this, this does this. So in, the, in that same way, in regards to being a good mixer, you should spend hours in front of you know, as much time as you can in front of a console, in front of near fields and just, or headphones, even, um, just experiencing those things I'm talking about. Yeah. That's outstanding advice. Um, and then real quickly, um, uh, we talked a little bit about high pass, low pass. I know that that's one of your four critical foundations, uh, that you like to employ when mixing or, you know, setting up your mix. And I think you've said that you can mix a show 
with only having four adjustments in front of you. Do you want to talk briefly about those tools and uh, sort of the responsibility of each one of those and how they play into your mix approach? Sure. Um, you know, when I say I, if I only had the, those four tools, I think I can get a pretty good result. That's not that's I'm not saying that I that's how I mix my shows. I definitely do right. lots of other stuff. But my point is, is that the fundamentals of this are what's really important. OK, so number one, mic choice. And the reason that mic choice is the number one is because it is your first conversion, you know, from uh, acoustic to electric transduction. That is the first thing that happens. You know, everybody talks about all the time in this day and age about conversion and how analog to digital conversion is so important. Well, think about a microphone. The microphone, the acoustic to electric transduction, that's more important than conversion, you know? So I think a lot of people don't, you know, they just throw up a mic in front of something and go, yeah, whatever. Um, I. I think that if you make the right mic choices, you can reduce your amount of EQ that you use by like 50% because making the right choices will get you a pre-EQ'd, for lack of a better term, um, version of whatever it is, you know? So um, I've spent a bunch of time listening to microphones and I have a, a, a toolkit full of microphones that I say, okay, that's probably what I'm gonna put in front of guitars, you know, et cetera. Um, so do that, learn, learn microphones, have those tools. Second thing, mic placement, which is just as important as mic choice. Um, you will discover, I have watched hundreds of engineers um, pull up an input, kind of look like, you know, the RCA dog, like have the cocked head kind of a thing. And then, and then start making adjustments on a console. Okay. You're doing it wrong. Bring it up and go, I, this doesn't sound right. And go to the stage. I guarantee you that if you go to the stage and you move that microphone around or change the mic choice, either one of those two things, you will um, come back to your console and be like, oh, okay, so now I don't have to add a bunch of EQ. And the reason that I say that is because people don't realize, young engineers don't realize just how much phase is induced by EQ. Um, you are, as soon as you insert an EQ into all of your channels, you're inducing huge amounts of phase into your mix. So avoiding that is, is a better plan. So mic choice, mic placement, um, Third thing is high pass filtering, low pass filtering. We kind of already touched on that. A super, um, I, I see misuse by both of those things a lot. Um, you know, um, high pass filtering is uh, your friend and you should be, uh, like I would say every channel, maybe only maybe a couple of channels in a 100 or 120 input show will not have a high pass filter in it. Uh, the rest of them, even stuff like kick drum and bass guitar, uh, will have a little bit of high pass in there just to get rid of the stuff that's way down in there and make subs more efficient, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so get to learn whatever the slant is in the console of your choice. Get to learn that, the knee of it, of your high pass filter and how you can utilize that to be your friend. Um, same thing with low pass filtering. We talked about that earlier. Um, and, um, oh my God, I'm having a brain fart. What's my fourth one? Gain, gain structure. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> gain structure. God, 
Um, it's been, you know, it's funny. I've been doing a bunch of these things and it's like, all I've been doing is talking about audio, which is great. But my brain is just like, you know, fried, um, game structure. Right. So there's a thing that happens, um, with, uh, analog mic pre's that, um, you have to experiment with. Um, we could go and talk for hours about over gain. Um, but very simply, if you turn up a mic pre, Turn it all the way up um, in front of some speakers with a microphone and then turn it up to the point where it starts to feed back and then turn it down just a little bit. And you will discover that that microphone is overgained and it is kind of uncontrollable, right? It's not feeding back. You know, you're not at the point where it's feeding back all the time, but it is uncontrollable. And that is like a felt thing that happens with analog mic pre's. Okay. So, um, it's interesting to me that, and what that is, just so you guys know, is a connection between the electric and the acoustic part of your microphone, right? There's a connection, a feedback loop that's happening there. So there is definite connection that happens between your mic pre and what's happening with your microphone. Know that so that even when the microphone is far away from speakers, there's still interaction that's happening between your microphone and that mic pre, right? So you could be in a situation where you're, you know, the microphone is way far away from speakers. So it's not a feedback thing. You're not getting feedback, but the input sounds a little weird because you've got this thing called overgain. And that has to do with the felt part of a, of a, of a mic pre um, and the interaction that happens with a microphone. So learn that stuff and learn about getting all of that gain structure right and not overgaining inputs. Um, it drives me crazy to watch in this day and world with digital trim where guys just gain shit all the way up and then use their trim to turn it down. You're not doing the same thing. You are causing an, an analog interaction between that microphone and the mic pre that is just, it's not a good idea. Don't do it, you know? Um, so, so there's that. And then the mixing part of this is gain structure wise, like getting it right. Um, getting, um, you know, fader resolution at zero, you know, fader resolution is just as important. Um, you know, uh, the, the way a fader works is um, the less movement that you do it around zero makes little movements. But if you move that fader and move it down into minus 10, minus 20, a small movement at minus 10 and minus 20, you know, they're logarithmic, uh, minus 10 or minus 20 is a huge move, right? So get all your faders close to zero when you're gaining things up so that when you make movements in your mix, they're not giant jumps. Um, and so... Those are all things that you kind of need to learn. So with those four tools, it gets you to a place where I can get a pretty good result. You know, all the rest of it is important as well. But those four fundamentals getting right will head you into success for sure. That's awesome. All right. Well, I, I wish I could talk to you for another couple of hours. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> but I know you've got other things to move on to. And uh you're really doing a great service to everybody by sharing your information and your experience. So thank you very much for being on this podcast. Uh, it means a ton to me, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to really benefit from the the stories that you shared. So thank you very much again for being on the show. Thank uh, you. Yeah. So I hope to stay in touch with you and talk to you uh, in the near future. But we'll uh, get everybody pointed over towards your masterclass, the YouTube channel. I know you're giving away some really cool gear on your YouTube yeah. channel. 
So yeah. uh, if people haven't uh, subscribed and registered, make sure you do that because you can get some uh, pretty fun stuff there. Cool. So Pooch, thanks a lot. Um, we'll see you uh, hopefully when we're back out touring again. Until then, I hope you stay healthy and uh, don't go too insane uh, staying cooped up at the house. <laughs> you as well. Everybody stay healthy out there. Wash your hands. Don't go to you know the store and sneeze on people. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. So thanks, right. Pooch, very much. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. And that's a wrap on today's show. I hope that you found it equal parts entertaining and informative. This show is recorded on an Allen & Heath D-Live system with Sure microphones and Waves tracks live. I use Skype, FaceTime, and Facebook Messenger to meet with my guests, so the occasional robot voice is to be expected. Thanks again to Merrick Goodwin for the awesome show music and to you for listening. Be sure to visit the Mixmasters website at www.mixmasterspodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend. Mixmasters can also be found on Facebook and Instagram at Mixmasters Podcast. That's all one word. Give a like, follow us, and never miss out on new episodes. 